Hello. Welcome, everybody. We are talking about medically recommended intensive supervision. We appreciate you guys being here. We're going to just give it maybe about 60 to 90 seconds to let a few more people come in. And um, I'll introduce you to our professionals, our uh, experts in the field, and we will get started on this. We're going to be talking about all things that have to do with com the compassionate release within the Texas prison systems. I get lots of questions about this, so I'm excited to get a lot of information out, and I'm going to be learning right along beside you guys. I've already got people coming in, Marcy. I we see do. them coming. We have a good amount. I see people coming in, and we appreciate y'all. Um, we are monitoring the chats, so please feel free to use the chats. We're going to be answering questions at the end of the discussion, and so as we go along, you guys can converse with each other in the chat. But if you have special questions for us. Uh, it's easier if you wait towards the end to ask those, and we will address those at the end. And I think we should get started. I appreciate everybody for being here. My name is Marcy Marie Simmons. I am the Community Outreach Coordinator for Linus Justice Impacted Women's Alliance. I am formerly incarcerated. I have 10 years lived experience inside the Texas prison system. I am a social media influencer. I started sharing my experiences online. And I am the co-host of On the Rec Yard Women's Prison Podcast. <laughs> I'll be facilitating tonight, and I would like to introduce our panelists. First, we have Kirsten Budwine. Kirsten is the 2023-24 Man Family Legal Fellow at the Texas Civil Rights Project, where she works in the Criminal Injustice Program, helping to prevent the harms of the criminal legal system by reducing over-policing and criminalization in Texas. Jennifer Toon is the um, she's right below me. She is the project director for Linus Justice Impacted Women's Alliance. Jennifer is a passionate prison abolitionist. As a formerly incarcerated woman, her experience with the criminal legal system began at age 15 when she was adjudicated under Texas determinate sentencing laws. Her, convic her conviction started a long journey through 27 years of criminal justice involvement. Jennifer has been published in the Texas Observer, The Marshall Project, The Guardian, and is also the co-host of On the Rec Yard Women's Prison podcast. Justin Martinez is right next to me. He is a policy analyst at the Bear County and, excuse me, he is a policy analysis analyst at the Bear County Project Director I keep saying at the bear, and I apologize for that, people. Let me let me give Justin what the the introduction that he deserves. <laughs> Justin Martinez is a policy analyst and the Bear County Project Director at the Texas Center for Justice and Equity. He joined the organization as a policy associate in early 2020, focusing on addressing the devastating impacts of de facto life sentences on youth. He continues to support both youth and adult-related justice reforms at the state level, while also working with local Bear County partners to reform practices that lead to justice system involvement. Justice, Justin completed his Master of Arts in Legal Studies with a paralegal certification at Texas State University. <laughs> Justin, I apologize for that introduction. <laughs> I feel like we have an all-star panel here, and I'm so excited to just jump right into the discussion. And I want to say that we have a good um, crowd watching and here with us today, so I'm excited to hear their thoughts on it, to see their thoughts in the chat. My first question is for Kirsten. 
Kirsten, will you please walk us through the eligibility and process of obtaining what Texas calls medically recommended intensive supervision? Of course. Thank you so much to Lioness and TCJE for having me on this panel. Um, I'll say this quick thing about Lioness. I used to binge watch y'all's TikTok videos before I even um, started at TCRP and love you guys. You guys are doing amazing work. You guys are doing amazing work at TCJE, Justin. So I'm really honored to be on this panel with y'all. Um, so as Marcy talked about, um, I'm just going to call it MRIS. It's also called Compassionate Release. Medically Recommended Intensive Supervision is the long title for it, but I'll just be using the short-term MRIS tonight. And so it's a very intricate process. And so I'm going to simplify it as much as I can, but know that I am leaving out a lot of detail in this um, simplification. So the first part I want to start off with is eligibility and address that. So for somebody to be eligible for MRIS, um, of course, you have to be incarcerated in uh, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, and then you have to fit into one of the nine categories. And so the nine categories are you have to be elderly, and what they consider elderly are people who are 65 or older. You have to be mentally ill, developmentally disabled, requiring long-term care, physically handicapped, special needs, or um, have organic brain syndrome, persistent vegetative state, or be considered terminally ill. And so these categories, other than elderly, all of the other the other eight categories um, have to be determined by a, a, a doctor. And so this is not something that you can just say like, okay, I think this person is um, considered mentally ill. Like they have to be diagnosed by someone. And so those are the nine categories, but it doesn't stop there. It's not enough for you to fit into one of those nine categories. A person's offense, their sentence, and even their citizenship status can also affect their eligibility status. And so, for example, you're ineligible. You cannot be considered for MRIS. You will not be considered at all if you're serving a sentence for death or life without parole. And then you're further restricted if you are an individual who is serving time for an offense that falls under 42A. And these used to be called the 3G offenses, but they not, now fall under um, 42A.054 of the criminal procedure um, code. And so if you do, if you are serving time for an offense that falls under 42A, you can only be considered if you are terminally ill or you have been deemed in need of long-term care. And then if you have an uh, reportable conviction or adjudication, and this is like anything, you don't have to be serving time for it right now. This is if you've ever um, been convicted or adjudicated for a crime um, or offense under chapter 62. These are really known as like the sex offense cases, sex the sex type of cases. And if you have been um, adjudicated or um, convicted under that, then you have to have been deemed um, of having organic brain syndrome with significant to total mobility impairment or be in a persistent vegetative state. So as you can see, you're already limited, whether like if you're serving time for um, a death for life without parole, or if you committed an offense that falls under these two statutes. And then further, if you're not a US citizen, um, you cannot be considered if you fall under 42A or chapter 62. They don't really care if you're terminally ill or um, have organic brain syndrome or need long-term care. If you're not a US citizen, you committed an offense under 42A or chapter 62, you would not be considered at all. And so that's an overview of, I guess, not who is eligible, who is not eligible. And as you can see, it's very restrictive. Um, a lot of people are screened out just based on not fitting into one of those nine categories. And then on top of that, even if you do fit into one of those nine categories, you have to um, meet the offense and the sentence requirements. And so the next thing that Marcy asked me about was the process. And this process is really long, so I tried to simplify it as much as I could. But it really starts with identifying a person who is eligible. And anybody can do this. This can be um, a TDCJ physician doctor, medical staff, or it can be just anybody in the community. It can be the person who wants to be considered themselves. So the incarcerated individual it can be their family members, their friends. And so once that person is identified, then they're referred. 
So if it's a medical referral by somebody who is a medical staff in CDC, then they will call up to Kumi and send over a medical summary and say, hey, I think this person is um, meets the requirements for um, MRIS. I want you guys to consider them. And then all other referrals. So say if I call in a referral, I have to call the Takumi line and say, hey, I think this person is eligible, but they won't consider anything that I give them. Like they won't consider any outside information. And so then the next step is the eligibility screening. And this is done by Takumi. And Takumi is an arm of TDCJ. Um, and so they will screen a person. They'll look at the person and say, is this person eligible based on the statutory requirements, the criteria that we just talked about. They'll also look at their medical history, offense history, all of those things. And after looking at that, they'll say, okay, this person is eligible or they're not. And if they are eligible, they'll reach out to that individual um, and ask them if they authorize uh, for Takumi to move on with the next step, which is to prepare a packet um, it's called a transmittal packet. And what this seems to be, we haven't like physically seen one, but what this seems to be is a packet of like all the medical information about the person and then any offense that they've committed, their time in TDCJ, things of that sort. And this packet is um, put together for the reviewing authority. And it depends on if the person is in prison or if they're in a state jail. So if the person is in prison, then that transmittal packet will go to the Board of Pardons and Paroles, the same people who hear parole cases. Um, and the Board of Pardons and Paroles will, they have their two steps. And when I first looked at this, it, it just seems like repetitive. So that first step is, do we even want to consider this person? Do we even want to consider their application? If the panel says yes, then the next step is, okay, so now let's vote on whether MRS should be granted based on this transmittal packet and anything else that has been um, submitted to us. And at that point, before you get to the part where um, the board and partners and paroles is looking at that packet, this is the part where a person um, can submit something like a parole packet. They will accept that and they will um, take that into consideration when reviewing the transmittal packet as well. And then for people who are in state jail, um, it's actually the sentencing judge that reviews the application, not the Board of Pardons and Paroles. So that's interesting. At that point, I told you this is a long process. So at that point, um, the MRIS staff or Takumi will notify the person whether they have been um, granted MRIS or not. And then after that um, is like the release planning. This is um, MRIS staff, other TDCJ departments, they come together kind of plan, get a plan for release, um, including like housing, medical care, and then um, they submit that. The MRIS and parole staff continue to monitor the person after they've been released. And then that's kind of where the process ends if a person, you know, makes it past those two stages. Um, but that one thing I wanted to mention was reconsideration. So if a person is considered for MRIS, and then um, denied based on why they were referred um, the, is when they, they can be re-reviewed. So for, um, to be more specific, if somebody was referred based on their age, then they can't be re-reviewed until a year later. Whereas if a person was um, considered based on one of those other eight medical um, ailments, then they can be reviewed after six months, or if there's some really telling like evidence about their condition like worsening, then Takumi will consider them earlier than that. But that's basically the process. I know that was like really long-winded, but I, I promise I literally shortened it as much as I could. No, you did a beautiful job of explaining everything, Kirsten, because that was a massive amount of information. And I just couldn't help but notice how long the list of barriers are when it comes to MRIS slash compassionate release. Uh, it's very, very disheartening to know that um, there's lots of people that could qualify but they hit those barriers. I want to move on to Jennifer Toon. Jennifer, I'm wondering, 
during your incarceration, and then also you do have lots of members that are currently incarcerated in Linus now. Have you heard any personal stories? Do you have any personal stories of people incarcerated that are going through this process? Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, in, in the 20 years that I did in the system, I believe I knew uh, two people that actually were able to utilize MRIS. Uh, one of them died uh, pretty shortly after she was finally released. It, it felt like uh, TDCJ was holding her hostage. And, and this was somebody that did qualify. Um, and she was almost at the end of her 15 year sentence. And, you know, I've, I've spoken about her many times before, uh, an older woman who was going blind, who had cancer. And uh, she had been denied parole, regular parole. And she was getting close to discharging that 15. And um, her mother had to hire an attorney to try to get her MRIS and um, uncompassionate release. That's, that's what I personally call it. Um, and she fought, she fought and fought with them. Uh, and one of the things that TDCJ told her at the time, um, it, this was told to us by her, uh, the, her mother was that, well, our concern is that she will get better, <laughs> that we are going to release her and she will get better. Now she has terminal cancer. Um, you know, all the doctors at UTMB uh, and John Seeley, um, she had uh, died and been revived one time um, in, in the ambulance uh, when she was rushed down there. She was absolutely not a threat to society. Uh, and she was almost finished with her sentence. That's what the, the, the even more shocking thing was. And um, Teresa, uh, her mother was able, and her mother was 90 years old fighting and getting an attorney to finally get her out of there. And she died um, a couple of days after uh, a hospice had received her in the community. And, um, you know, it's, we had our correspondence manager, <laughs> Diane, who does our inReach, uh, you know, she's been hustling and looking and, and she, and we know a a plethora of women that desperately need this based on their age, their disabilities, and um, their health. They are in bad health. And I believe it was the 23 names uh, that we suggested. None of them qualified. Um, two were pending parole right now, but like those are women that are in desperately needed. But like you had, you know, pointed out earlier and uh, Kirsten did a, a good job of explaining this very complicated process. It should not be this complicated to get sick and elderly dying people out of a cage. It, it should not. Um, and so it's just through my time, it's underutilized. Um, I remember reading a Texas Tribune report several years ago that something like, and I may have the exact numbers wrong, but it was something like 2000 people um, were recommended and 63 were approved. I mean, let that sink in. And so this would have been something we could have used during COVID to get people out um, who were vulnerable. And it just, it, it's shocking, Marcy. It's absolutely shocking um, that, well, I could get into Texas being cruel uh, all the way across the board with, with, its, with the people within uh, our state, but it's just another level of, of cruelty for sure. It does feel like Texas, and especially in, in this capacity, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice has a different meaning of compassionate than most people, right? Because we do have these elderly, very ill people locked in cages, just like you said. I wanted to take note of um, someone in the chat that did about 15 years. Eric said in 15 years, he knows one man that got it, one in 15. And my story is very similar. My 10 years inside experience, I know one lady that got it. And she got about six months before the end of her actual sentence. <laughs> so right. it wasn't that close.
just weeks after. So it was a thing that she got to go home and see her family, but she had to fight for that for a long time. And she also had terminal cancer. So it would have been nice for her to have more time with her family. Absolutely. With all of this said, with all of the barriers and the stories that we know from the inside and the um, story that Jennifer shared with us, I want to ask Justin, as a policy analyst, what needs to happen through policy or legislation to make this better, to make this a more effective program? Has there been any efforts for that? And if so, where did, where did those efforts go? Yeah. Uh, well, first, um, uncompassionate release. I just, I just want to repeat that because that is, is encapsulates everything. But um, yeah, I feel like the list is way shorter if we're, if the question was what is right with MRIS in Texas and what is wrong. Because I think MRIS is another one of those things that we have that is really in need of a complete overhaul, right? I mean, at every stage of this process, there are significant um, changes that need to happen. Um, but before I get into some of the policy stuff, like just to kind of give folks some background. So this MRIS, this was established in the early 90s. So, I mean, this isn't something new. It's been around for a while. Um, and the intent, the reason why the legislator intended to create this statute, create MRIS, was fairly simple, right? They were looking for a way to deal with rising healthcare costs. And those of us who are involved in this in any way know that that is the one thing that you are almost guaranteed to hear. Like I would bet a million bucks <laughs> that when TDCJ gets up, they're going to talk about rising healthcare costs. And part of what, how they were going to deal with the rising healthcare costs was providing an early release mechanism for folks who are elderly and hit all the criteria that was just laid out. And unfortunately, that has not happened. As Jen said, I, I looked at the report to figure out to see the, the numbers from fiscal year 2022, and only 58 people were approved. And we know that this population is the fastest growing population within TDCJ. Our prisons are literally graying, right? They are turning into nursing homes. But yet we see these just egregious low approval rates. And I think to sort of get in the policy side of this, I think the reason why we see a lot of that in part is what was laid out. I mean, you have a law that one categorically excludes folks from even being considered. Those are death sentence or life without parole. And then you have these thresholds, these added barriers for folks that have to meet based off of offense. Um, and those combined really carve out a vast amount of folks from even just being considered. We're not even talking about the release side. We're talking about just being considered. And so I think one of the things that needs to happen is we just need to get rid of that. There's absolutely no reason why that needs to be in place. Uh, there is, there is um, a large body of research and evidence out there that, that shows that especially elderly incarcerated individuals, especially the folks we are talking about, do not pose the kind of public safety risk that I think these folks think they do, right? And so there's absolutely no reason, just from a human level, right? But even from when you're looking at this from sort of a research policy level, there's really no reason to have those types of, of barriers. It's inhumane, it's cruel, and, does, and that needs to be changed. And that's the first thing on the front end, right? But then on the back end, you have, um, Kirsten kind of explained it, sort of the the way in which the, the parole board, they're called MRIS panels, goes about making their determinations. Um, and part of that determination is whether or not this person constitutes a threat to public safety, right? And so just like we see with general parole, when you have something that is so vague as, as that, you leave it up for folks to bring in subjective factors, their personal feelings, basing things off of static factors like their criminal history or the nature of the crime that ends up playing into this decision. And so while we need to expand the net in the front end, we need to also seriously consider what would it look like to take away that type of discretion 
and to guide it in a way in which these folks are presumed to be released. Because as Kirsten said, it's not a matter of whether or not they're eligible. That's already been established. It's already been established that they're eligible for MRIS. They should be released. These folks should be, if they have us, they have to have a suitable medical placement, right? So it's not like they're just getting released out to, to wherever, you know? So there are things in place and these folks should just, they should be going, right? They should be going out. Um, and I think the other thing um, too that was brought up is the definition around elderly. Um, you know, when the, the definition that they have being 65 and older, I think makes sense out here, right? But when you're talking about the incarcerated population um, and you sort of <laughs> take into account these people have been incarcerated for years, if not decades, and you talk about the lack of nutrition and lack of proper medical care, the the trauma, I mean, just everything, like it, it tends to create what's called accelerated aging amongst folks who are incarcerated. And when you talk to like experts, they, they tend to put the definition closer to 50 to 55 and over when we're talking about the incarcerated population. Um, and then the other thing, like I said, there's so many, but I think the one thing I wanna make sure to add is that say a person meets all of this, they somehow get through this entire maze and they come out. Well, if their condition improves while they're out, TDCJ can essentially call them back to prison, you know? So there's, I mean, and there's so much more too. I mean, there's there's so much around, uh, or maybe one thing to, to mention is the terminal illness aspect of it because uh, Texas defines terminal illness as essentially having a, uh, essentially having a condition that will, is, is the expected death is within six months. That's the terminal illness definition. And when you dig into that, and when you talk to folks that that is not like, doctors hesitate to make that that type of prognosis. And so when you have those type of definitions like terminal illness, there shouldn't be sort of that predictive criteria that goes along with it, right? So, I mean, again, there's there's a lot, right? You have the big stuff at the front end, you have the way the, the parole board has as much discretion as they do to make decisions, and you have all these little things within the process that needs to change. Um, because yeah, right now we don't, we have something that it's not working and it hasn't been working for a long time. I was shocked when you said that this um, has been in place since the early 90s and we haven't been seeing it effective at all. We haven't been seeing these folks. I mean, I was incarcerated on a medical unit. I was with people that were would qualify in, in a reasonable person's way of thinking, they would think this person doesn't need to be in prison anymore. They can barely walk anymore, you know? And so I'm, I was really surprised. And then Justin, you said something about the parole board when Kirsten said that the parole board had, had their hand in it. Uh, we do know how open interpretation um, and how they can take one term and, it's very, it's just too broad, right? Uh, for sure, it just seems like there needs to be a, hey, this person meets this criteria. Medical has said this person meets this criteria. It just seems like it should be some boxes to check. Yeah. They've, less they've, of criteria. they've been approved through Takumi. They've gone through the screening. They have a medical suitable placement. They have a plan. Just let them. Just let them go. It's like the the cruelty. Just it's it's sort of mind boggling, right? When when you sit and think about it. Um, but yeah. So is the answer maybe legislation, policy? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> those those who know me sort of know I have like even though I work um, <laughs> in the state level, I have a I have a critique around like relying on sort of a traditional top down legislative approach, right? But I do think legislation has a purpose in this. I mean, I, I do think, I mean, there are things within the law that that needs to change, um, no doubt about it. Um, and I think you asked me like what's been going on. And so we have been, um, us here on this call, sort of started working on this last session um, with the bill 
Um, shout out to Representative Jarvis Johnson and specifically Amanda, um, who are amazing champions on these issues. Um, but they have a bill regarding MRIS that um, I think is the most comprehensive um, bill out there that's looking to do exactly what we're talking about. That bill was looking to take care of the issues around folks not being are completely being excluded and these barriers and how we define elderly and even reporting practices, right? Because there's nothing, they barely report anything, <laughs> like barely anything on this. And so I think that's part of why this has flown underneath the radar is just because no one's looking. Um, and it's no one's looking because there's nothing there. <laughs> and so that bill also, we had a really, really um, robust, meaningful um, reporting practice in there. But that's that's the one thing that we have going on. And I'm sure we're going to be in that fight again this upcoming session. And there are some other bills, too, that were related to um, this. But I think besides the legislative stuff, I think there's um, a space to organize with the Texas Board of Criminal Justice, who sort of has the power to create policy. So you can do stuff at the ledge with the law, but you can also do stuff by saying, hey, can you just not define elderly in that way? Can you not define terminal illness in that way? Like, right, there are things that TDCJ, BPP can do on their own. And so that's also another place of advocacy. But then the other, I think, more important place is, is what we're doing now, right, is, is having these conversations, is building these critical connections with folks who have experienced it, um, with folks on the ground, and just talking about it and getting it into sort of the, the public consciousness, right? Excellent information. I love that you brought up the Texas Board of Criminal Justice, and we did attend their board meeting. Linus was at their board meeting along with lots of other advocates, and so that was one opportunity. Is there another way, and Jennifer, maybe you know, can we, can we contact them outside of a board meeting? I'm not sure, and I wish I Well, sure. <laughs> I mean... We can do whatever we want, the advocates on this call, and I think we've shown that. <laughs> so, well, uh, you know, um, uh, certainly Sunset Review is coming up is a way to submit comments, right? Here's the problem. Here's some solutions that we have. And uh, certainly you can email and contact board members uh, anytime you want to. Um, so, but I, I do want to specifically point out the Sunset Advisory Commission and why that's so important. I'm going to throw a plug in for our um, our comment writing party Monday night. Um, Linus is inviting everyone that wants to be a part of the work group to hang out with us Monday night to learn more about what Sunset is, why it's important. And if you're having problems writing comments or not sure how to sub submit, we're all going to do it together um, on a call. <laughs> so please, if, if you have questions, but this is one of the ways that you can do that, going to board, the board meetings, uh, contacting legislators, uh, you know, doing, doing all those things. I, I'm wondering if Kirsten um, has other ideas of what else folks can do to support um, you know, what they're doing uh, to dig into uh, MRIS specifically. I know that, gosh, we really value y'all. <laughs> like y'all just, you know, have just cared for our members and really um, allowed this to be very community led. And we just appreciate, you know, you and, and Justin, of course, um, just really uh, honoring our members and the the people that we've suggested. So I'm wondering, if, is there some stuff that you think that folks can do as well? While you're thinking about that, yeah. Kirsten, I want to remind everybody that's watching to go ahead and put your questions because you want these experts. You have them at your fingertips right now, and they are going to answer your questions the best that they can. Thank you, Kirsten. So thank you for that, Jennifer. I, I was hoping that I would get a chance to plug in the project that TCRP is doing. So um, along with these people on the panel, we've all worked on the same project and I've gotten referrals from Lioness and other organizations and people who have just reached out to me about it. But basically what we're doing is, um, it's called the MRIS project, Compassionate Release Project. And what we're doing is, um, as Jennifer had mentioned, um, 
because MRIs is such an underutilized tool, we wanted to dig deeper into like what's going on. And we're doing this through individual representations of people. So we're identifying, finding people who may be eligible, crossing our fingers um, and going like screening these people, going to interview them. But we're leading this conversation with the, we're, we're we're leaving expectations low when we when we talk to people who are incarcerated because the last thing we want to do is go in and say, "Hey, we're about to get you out," knowing that thousands of people are recommended each year, and like under a hundred people are actually released. Um, and so we've specifically focused on the 65 and older category. And so what we've been doing is getting referrals and anybody who. Um, has a referral. I'll put my email. I don't know where I'm supposed to put my email on here. This is my first time on this platform, but I'll figure out how to put my email on here. Um, if you have somebody who you think may be eligible based on uh, what I talked about earlier, we're really focusing on that category of people, identifying them, um, screening them, and going in, partnering up with the Texas A&M School of Law Civil Rights Clinic. Um, so last year, we represented or tried to represent three people, three women who were recommended to us by Lioness. And out of those three women, only one of them, um, after like looking at everything, only one of them were, uh, one of the women were eligible to even be referred um, because the other women either had one of those offenses or they had already been considered for MRIS in the past year and they had been referred based on age. And so that's what we've been doing. And we're doing this with the intent of not only like individually representing people, letting them know like upfront, hey, it's very unlikely that you'll be, um, that you'll make it past the screening stage, let alone um, make it out of prison through MRIS. But we're doing this because we wanna learn more about the process and learn more about the things that are not written in policy and the things that, you know, is not made public. And so through that, I'll give you an example. One thing that has come up um, is, so we had a person, I told you like the one person that uh, we found was eligible. We referred her back in December, a couple of weeks later, um, Takumi got back to us and said she was denied. And we're like, it's no way she was denied. We literally, Dot our eyes, cross our T's on this lady, like wrote a packet. We were ready. We 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 wrote the packet with the AM clinic. We were ready to submit that packet uh, once she made it past that screening stage. They got back to us and said, hey, she's not eligible because she was referred based on age alone, not because of one of those other eight categories. And she's currently in parole review. So they said, and this is not written in, in the policy anywhere. Like any, if you go to Takumi's policies, uh, Texas Board of Parties and Pros, anybody's policies, this is not written down anywhere. And so this is something we have to figure out through that personal that individual representation. And so that is the goal is to like find out how, like we already know MRIS is a broken system, but like how, um, what specifically is going on? So we're doing that through representing clients, um, with the bigger goal in mind of making this better for people in the future who are, who are incarcerated. And um, we plan on, you know, taking everything that we've learned from this process. We're doing it again this semester with the same clinic. We plan on taking everything that we've learned and putting that in a policy report and getting that ready for next year's legislative session so that we can bring it to the policymakers and say, hey, you know, we know there's a lot of issues, but these are the specific cases that we've taken on. And this is exactly what happened in this case. And even the cases that we can't um, refer because they aren't eligible, we're even pointing to those cases. Hey, this woman, um, you know, wasn't, or this woman or guy, whoever, um, couldn't be referred because of their offense. And, and, th and that's, that's not right. Like their offense shouldn't be the reason why they're barred from consideration. So we're taking, we're doing all of that. Um, and that's kind of the gist of, the of our project um of the mris project and so again once i figure out how to put jennifer and marcy can y'all help me out marcy already did it girl it's at the bottom of the screen <laughs> it's there over here i put the comments on the side i'm trying to talk it you know it's a lot going on. i like this platform though so so it's um, person at texas civil rights project.org and it's just below the screen you guys it's on the ticker going by there see it. <laughs> nice. she's 
she wants us to um, email her people that we know that are incarcerated that um, could possibly be eligible for MRIS and let's get them let's get them involved in this um, and like she said we're not building up this huge hope that hey we're not saying um, Texas Civil Rights Project is going to get your loved one out of prison that's not what we're saying I right know. <laughs> what we are saying is, is low. yeah Yes, the expectation there it is low because we know that this is a broken system, but we want to um, see what we can do. We want to see how the process works to navigate it, help you navigate that for your loved one. So please do. Um, also on the Linus social media pages are, we have some posts there, calls, and we have seen you all sharing that post. We are looking for those. Uh, and I think people are hesitant because they don't really know about the program. They don't know about the the restrictions, or maybe they know the restrictions are too much, or they've done 20 years and they never saw anybody go home on compassionate release and they just don't believe it. I'm surprised that we're not getting more names, more recommendations. <laughs> um, Kirsten, will we be working with people that have been denied before? And I'm going to put Robert Lilly's comment here. I'm not sure if his brother... Uh, meets the age requirement for this project, but uh, his brother, they requested it for his brother based on severe mental illness and it was denied. So what I'm wondering is people with past denials, are they eligible maybe for this project? Yeah. So I believe what the Takumi policy says is that if they were recommended based on their age, which, which it doesn't seem like here, they can be considered reconsidered until a year later. But if it was for any other reason, then it's six months later. So depending on when you put in that referral, uh, Robert, is when uh, we would be, I would have to look to see um, whether he's uh, up for re-review. But if you send me an email um, with the information, we're doing a lot of like, preliminary screenings to figure out who's eligible and, you know, who's been reviewed. One thing that has been um, an issue that we've run into is we can't just call Takumi and say, hey, has this person been reviewed in the past? Because that will trigger another re-review. And we don't want to trigger a re-review if we're not ready to submit something um, to advocate for that person. But uh, feel free to email me with Conrad's information, TDCJ number, and we can see what we see what information we can find out about, about him. Thank you for that, Kirsten. We appreciate that so much. We have a question about um, the ladies facilities. They're asking if the Carol Young unit is where they send the elderly who need more medical attention or services. And is that where they're sent if they have a terminal illness? Um, and so Jennifer, do you want to answer that question? Yeah, I'm sorry. I was going to text Robert and make sure that he had Kirsten's um, email. Um, Robert, if you're still watching, um, I will. we will make sure uh, that you get it for your brother. Um, uh, so is, is that where they house the elderly woman, women? Is that the question, Carol Young? So is that where they're sent to pass? So there is actually, they opened um, a hospice in at the crane unit um, at reception. I think that TDCJ posted, you know, you're fixing to crank me up. <laughs> so they posted um, some of the women being like peer support life coaches um, sitting with the women. And there was actually a woman who um, is at that hospice that I did a lot of time with an elderly woman. And, uh, you know, my comment on that video was, why don't you send them home? Right? Like, why did you build a hospice when you could just send them home? Um, and, uh, so, you know, it, it, Carol Young is for the women, um, with severe disabilities and that who need to have access to the John Seeley, that's the prison hospital. Uh, they need access to that more frequently. So they're housed at Carol Young. Um, but you know, like you said, you were at Lane Murray, that's considered a medical unit. Um, and then there is the hospice at Crane and, and Mountain View for a long time, uh, had a dorm that was just strictly, uh, elderly women. So, um, yeah, it, it is a medical unit for, for, for intense needs that need to have access, um, to the, to the hospital. 
Thank you for that, Jennifer. Mandy Zapata is one of our regional directors for Linus, and she's reminding us about Sunset. We touched on that a moment ago. I'm going to put the Sunset information back on the screen and also remind you, or in case you're just tuning in, Linus is hosting a Sunset Comment Writing Party. It's open invitation for anyone who would like to give their opinion on what, how the Texas Department of Criminal Justice is doing and what they need to do to make things better. And it, it's open. They want our opinion. They're under review. And uh, we will do it as a team. So you don't have to be thinking everything by yourself or if you're worried about how to word things properly like I might be. We're going to be all together and, and help thinking and talking talking that out on Monday. Thank you, Mandy, for that reminder. Do we have any more questions from anybody that's watching or any? Go ahead, Jennifer, please. Okay. <laughs> that movie where the, it's like, put, put your hand, put your hand well, down. Um, well, I saw Eric at the beginning of the, of the show ask something that I, I want to know because I don't know, right? Like how, again, I, I can't thank Kirsten and TCRP and Justin enough if we did this amount of time, if I did two decades, and I, it's a mystery how this process works. Um, but he, he asked a really good question, and I would love to know, too. It, when folks are recommended and they are under, they, they get through that process, and they're being considered for release at that point, are victims notified? The is this the same process for victim notification that it would be for regular parole? Yes. Yes, victim services is notified. And trial officials too. So just like with parole, um, trial officials get notified too. Wow. Um, so it, they are supervised. You had you had mentioned that they are supervised when they're released. If they make it through that maze and actually are released, um, is it a parole supervision? Is that who's supervising them, like someone that's on parole? So it's similar, but there are like more heightened requirements or I guess more restrictions for people who are released on MRS because... So like there's this constant, just like with um, anyone who's serving parole, there's like this constant eye on you and what you're doing. But specifically for this, they want to see like, is this person getting better? If they are, like let's send them back. Um, and so there's there's there are these like heightened restrictions or heightened um, elements when it comes to being released on MRIS that um, don't necessarily need to be met when you're released on parole. Thank you for that, Kirsten. And I don't see any more burning desires or um, questions in the chat. We appreciate everybody being here. Let's just summarize like the call to action because there are things that we can do right now um, to help change things, right? Through policy, through legislation, through the Sunset Advisory Commission. Um, anybody have calls to action. Jennifer, you want to take that? Man. <laughs> hey, look, if y'all are watching this, you need to share it. Okay. Cause this is until I don't believe that the citizens of Texas are this heartless. Do I believe some people in power are? Absolutely. Um, but there are people in power who are not like, uh, like Justin mentioned, representative, uh, Jarvis <laughs> Johnson, um, staffers like Amanda, who were always thoughtful and compassionate and, and just on fire about, um, you know, bringing justice and compassion to the folks that are suffering in our system. So there is support there. And I, I just I just believe that Texas uh, is not this heartless. And I think it's because what we always know and see is that people think that these processes work a certain way. Right. They think it's like well, just parole in general. Oh, it's like this. And like you see on TV and it's thoughtful and girl, it ain't none of that. It's, it's very, um, in, it's very cold. It's very detached from the person. Um, and we see this most definitely with, um, 
uncompassionate release. This is ridiculous. Um, and Justin nailed it, right? This was created as an outlet for them when they needed to have bed space, when they needed to get correctional, managed care, cost down. And so it was created with the wrong intention to begin with, but that doesn't mean it has to stay that way. Uh, and the more that we can educate people about what's happening to the folks on the inside and find a way to make that relatable um, to them and their own families, that's when we're going to get the Sunset Commission comments, right? That's when we're going to get people going to their legislators and showing up and showing out and really stepping forward uh, and, and inspiring organizations like this to say, hey, you know what? Give us some folks that we can actually work through the process and, and map this out. So when y'all are all running up to, to the Capitol during session, man, you've got this report to show them um, that this is what we're talking about and how can we can move the barriers. So it's all the things, Marcy. It's all the things. It's it's all the formal things of comments and legislators. It's also social media because we know that social media will drive action when done correctly. Uh, so please, y'all, share the word and get people educated and interested um, to join the fight. Thank you for that, Jennifer. You, you said that beautifully. And I love that you mentioned to definitely share this live, whatever platform you're watching this on, share it. Because not only does that help whomever you're sharing it with, it also helps the algorithm push it to even more people to, to come across their feed. And so we appreciate that very much. And also we want to encourage you to stay tuned in. So it's not just professionals like the three panelists we have today. It's people just like me and you uh, that go to their websites and stay tuned in and linked in to what's happening. So I wanted to make sure that and give a moment to have you guys Take note, uh, this is the Texas Center for Justice and Equities website here. And then we'll go to the Texas Civil Rights Project website. <laughs> and I had Linus's up. I'll stick my name up there for that. Um, you guys stay tuned in to us and you can kind of keep track to cause of action, legislative action. Um, and if you've never contacted your representative that's easier than you think. It's it's just a simple Google search. You can Google who represents me in Texas. It takes you to this website and you can send them a quick email saying, hey, I just watched this live. I just watched this webinar about medically recommended intensive supervision. And I want to know why is it so broken? I want to know why elderly terminal ill people are still locked in cages and Texas cares about money. Why are we paying for that? So uh, any final thoughts from anyone? Okay. Y'all again for having me on this panel and for sharing the word about MRS and TCRSP's work around it, Lioness's work and TCJE's work. You guys are amazing, been doing a great job and I am honored to be on this panel and to work with y'all. And thank you for everybody who streamed. Thank you, Kirsten. We appreciate you all so much and all the work that all of you panelists do for the incarcerated population is massive. And all of us out here appreciate you all. And thanks again, everyone, for being here.